Romans chapter 7, beginning in verse 13. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me. Through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law. That is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. So I find it to be the law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. This is the word of the Lord. Before I start this morning, let me tag on a bit to one of the announcements that was made this morning regarding um, church membership. You'll find in the foyer a, a list that you can sign if you have interest in that. We, the way we always talk about that is in the context of, of if you're interested, certainly in, in joining the church or just learning more about the church. So there's no commitment just because you walk through that process that, that you have to come out with a certain decision at the end. That's really your decision um, as you walk through it. Um, the reason I wanted to say something about it, though, is because a year ago this time, we had a number of people who were scheduled to be a part of that class, and then everything shut down about the time we were ready to have it. And so there's a number of you who've already expressed to me interest. I have that list, I, and I'll be kind of talking to you individually to see if you still have interest, or you can sign the list would help me to know that as well if you want to do that. But there were a number of people considering that and thinking about that. And the way we will do it, the reason we don't setting a time necessarily, it will most probably be on a Sunday evening. We're hoping a couple of Sunday evenings. Um, but we'd like to get the list together. We don't want to leave anybody out as much as possible. Try to build that around schedules and that kind of thing. And try to do it uh, before um, the middle of April. That's kind of our time frame when we want to shoot to try to do that. So... If you have interest, um, please let me know individually or sign the list or communicate with Pastor Jason. We'd love to have you be a part of that. And, and really what we do in that time is obviously talk about um, some fundamental things we ask you to affirm, obviously, uh, confession of faith, those kinds of things, but also just want to tell you more about who we are and, and what we really feel is our uh, reason for existence. It built much around our existence statement, but we want you to know if you choose to be a part of it, what you are being a part of. And so we look forward to that. This morning now, we're in Romans chapter 7. We've been in there for a few weeks, but we are moving on to another section of it this morning. And as I move into this section, I want to say this, and that is that one of my greatest fears as a pastor um, in the 44 years that I have pastored, particularly the, the portion of that, the majority of that has been here for 42 years, is that um, somehow I would convey a wrong picture of what the Christian life is. I think that particularly for young people, I feel it really keenly for young people. If you're a young person here this morning, um, that I would somehow paint a picture that is not the true reality of what it is. And therefore, um, you become a part of something and don't have the true picture of what you're a part of, or you choose to just run away from something and you're running away from the wrong thing. It's not, it's not the reality of what it is. <clears throat> 
And I feel that keenly, partly for a number of reasons, partly because um, as, as you preach from week to week, as you teach from week to week, um, you only get a little sliver of it each time. And we live in a society that's much more mobile now, and so the, the potential that you don't even get a majority of those slivers can happen. People in and out, and you don't hear the whole thing, and so you hear something, but then you don't hear the rest of the story kind of thing, and so you get an, uh, an imperfect idea of what has been said because you can't say it all every Sunday. I mean, I, I repeat enough. One of the criticisms I get is I repeat, and I do, and I don't, I don't apologize for it because of that fact. I, I come back to things and, and like to preach um, exegetically from the Scriptures because you can come back to what you said the last week if you think somebody might have gotten a wrong idea and you can expand it. And so that's my goal, to just keep expanding it. Some would like me to expand probably faster than others, and I understand that. But there's a reason for why we do it carefully. And then the second thing is, um, not only can that happen, but even if you come every Sunday... Again, you only get a portion of it on that Sunday. And there's times when, particularly today, as I'm in this text, I think, how in the world can I, can I do this? Can I break it down? Because it has to be broken down. I can't, I can't take this text in one Sunday and unpack it. There's no way to do that. And so you have to just give a little bit at a time. And so even as I prepared, I've been preparing for weeks for this text, thinking, how do I start? And how do I incrementally unpack this text so that I don't paint the wrong picture. You know, another danger in that, this is another side kind of idea of, of a danger, is that's the, the, the good news, the, the, the benefit is the better way to say it, of preaching through the scriptures is you don't preach your own hobby horses. Early on in my ministry, I think I probably did more of that, where I, I would be enthralled by a truth and I'd want to just keep coming back to that truth. And so I would pick places to come back to truths and that can get you in trouble as well if if you overemphasize something at the expense of something else and so that's why here at Richland we walk through the scriptures as much as possible it doesn't have to just be a book you can preach um, you can preach exegetically in topical form as long as you let the text drive it if you let something else drive it then you're in trouble you you get an idea you want to talk about and you find a text that you think kind of matches that that's that's not healthy i think but there's times when you maybe do a series that will be topical and you but you take text and you let what you're teaching come out of the text so this morning i lay all of that before you and and ask you to pray that god would help us i do not want to i do not want in any way to 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 paint a wrong picture of the of the scripture. Now, um, it has application, particularly in this text that we're in this morning. Um, I think this is uh, that this text paints a really good picture of what it is to walk with Christ as a believer. Um, the verses 14 to 25, um, I think, are the picture of a mature believer in Christ. And, and the walk of faith, the walk of letting God change his life from one degree of glory to another, the process we've talked about of sanctification, of, of God helping us to grow in grace. But one of the things that will help to not get a wrong idea is if there are questions, if you have questions, young people, if, if you have a question to talk to somebody about it, talk to one of the elders, talk to myself or Pastor Jason Ask those questions. Talk to your parents. Um, don't just keep those questions in your head and don't get answers to them. People who really grow in their faith are people who are willing to ask questions and get things clarified, and, and uh, it is important to do that. I remember early on in my ministry, this was, this was in the old sanctuary. It was when we used to have Sunday night services, and so it would have been pretty early on in my ministry here. I remember one evening... And uh, playing a tape, I didn't do this often, but we, it was such a good um, message that I had a cassette tape. Some of you don't even know what those are anymore, but a cassette tape that we played back then. And I remember the whole gist of what the person who was teaching was saying was this, that the first generation oftentimes gets grace. 
as they come into Christianity. They, they, they grasp grace. But the second generation, the danger is that they grasp the law because they get a mis, uh, a clouded idea of what the Christian life is for some reason. Now, that doesn't have to be that people are doing it wrong or saying it wrong. Satan will do that all by himself. He doesn't want us to get the proper picture. But the first generation gets grace, the second generation gets the law. And one of you sitting here today would almost liken back to that night of you coming to faith in Christ, coming alive in Christ as you heard that. You said, that's me, that's me. And God changed things for you that evening. So it's important that we get the picture right, the big picture. Let's go back to it again. This is part of repeating, but it's important. You know, if you've been here long enough, that, that I would say to you that salvation is three things. The, the work that God does is a work that has three parts in it. They are justification, sanctification, and glorification. What God begins at justification, he finishes at glorification. He who began a good work in you will bring that work to completion. But he does all of those things in it. All of that is part of God's work of redeeming a people, of saving a people. So in Romans, as we've walked through it, the big picture of that, Romans chapter 1 to 5, Paul's teaching primarily about justification. That in order to be right with a holy God, we need the righteousness of another. Now a righteousness from God has been revealed that is by faith, is the way Paul writes it. It's what changed Martin Luther's life. Texts like that, as he saw that it wasn't his righteousness by the law, but it was the righteousness of another, Christ, who perfectly fulfilled a law that Luther couldn't and we can't. And because he perfectly fulfilled that law, has a righteousness to provide us, to cover us with, to dress us in, if you will. That's what chapters 1 to 5 are. All of salvation is on that foundation. It begins there. But then the same moment that God justifies us, he puts his spirit within us and he begins the work of sanctification in our lives. And so we've said that chapters seven, 6 and 7 of Romans then turn to that subject of sanctification, of what it is to walk with God by his spirit indwelling us and how we live out that faith and how we allow him to work in us. To change us. A couple of texts that are foundational to this. Uh, Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 14. This text. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time. That's justification. Perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Or being made perfect is another way translations will translate that. That's a perfect picture of what Romans chapter 1 through 7 are talking about. First part, perfected forever by a righteousness, an alien righteousness outside of us. But at the same time, God sees us and declares us as perfect by the perfection of Christ. He begins a work in us of sanctification by his spirit, changing us. So we are simultaneously righteous by the righteousness of another, seen as righteous, and sinner in the sense that we still deal with indwelling sin as God sanctifies us. He changes us. Um, and, and it's all on the foundation of justification. In fact, one of the things that we have said often is the only sin, the only sin that you can successfully come against and battle in your life is a canceled sin. It was Charles Wesley who wrote, he breaks the power of what? Canceled sin. Sin that will not be held against us. And so when we come to realize that there is a righteousness for us and we let God clothe us in that and we stand in that and we declare the Lord is my salvation from that foundation, then we go to battle against indwelling sin in our lives. And that's the process of sanctification. And in 2 Corinthians, we came to that text a couple of times, 2 and 18 says, and we all, we all, these are people who have been justified, we all beholding the glory of the Lord Christ 
are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. How does it happen? By the law? No. We've said that. You can go back in the message. Not by the law, but by beholding the fulfillment of the law. What the law pointed to, what the law was all about, was Christ, who perfectly fulfilled that law and is the embodiment of all that moral law. As we look to him, as we look to him, as we look to him, as you keep looking to him. In fact, the only way it will happen is if you look to him. God changes us from one degree of glory to another. That's, that's sanctification. That's the life of faith. And that is what I believe Romans chapter 7, verses 14 to 24 is talking about. That work of sanctification in our lives that begins at justification and doesn't end until we're glorified, until we're actually made perfect in his presence in heaven one day. So, what I hope we will get over these next weeks as we spend some time taking bites of the apple, if you will, is that we will get a realistic view of our condition, the condition we have as redeemed believers, what our condition continues to be in that, and secondly, the battle we face of sanctification, of letting God change us from one degree of glory to another. Those are big terms, I know. Justification, sanctification, glorification. They're biblical terms. Don't get lost in the terms. But, uh, but hear the truth this morning. Now, what I want to do this morning, I said we can only take a little bit at a time. I can't, I can't do it all. And I've tried to put it down in, in a format that I can do it in the time frame I have, and then we'll just have to go on next week. And in the meantime, if there's something I say that, that you need to get clarified... By all means, get it clarified. Don't, don't get a misunderstanding because you didn't get clarification. Now, I want to say up front that the view I hold, um, that this is a mature Christian in the process of sanctification, is not the view all people who I would respect hold. I'm not talking about liberal theologians, but there are people even who, who have a high view of Scripture who, who would not be where I'm at. Um, most of the ones that I'm using as I walk through Romans are there, but not all of them, not all of them. There's some other views out there, a couple of other views. The most prominent other view is that Paul is talking about himself as, as an unbeliever, actually, in Romans 7, and doesn't talk about himself as a believer until he gets to Romans 8 again. I, I understand that view. I know some of the arguments of that view. I don't by the arguments, which doesn't devalue who those people are. Some of those people are way more brilliant than I am, so I I don't in any way demean the fact that others who may hold other views have them. Uh, Others, this this view, I have a much harder time that it's just an immature Paul. I I really have more trouble with that view, that Paul just didn't have uh, enough of the Spirit to be better. That view is a little harder even than the first one for me to, to, to hold to. So I want to say to you, there are others. You may read other things, which would be good for you to do that, to read the arguments, to know the arguments. But I believe that this is a picture of a mature Christian, Paul. It's a picture of Paul. Paul, when he wrote Romans, it's a picture of who he was, what he faced that day as he wrote the book of Romans. That's the view that I want to hold. And here's some reasons why. Let me give you some reasons why I hold to that. The first reason is that I don't think, look at verse 22. This is, this is the primary reason that I hold this view. I have others, but the primary reason is verse 22 of chapter 7. Paul says this, For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. I delight in the law of God in my inner being. I just cannot see, although there's some other arguments in other parts of this text, I just can't see anybody who's an unbeliever saying that. And it's true. I can see him saying it. An unbeliever could say it. I just don't think it can be true in the life of an unbeliever. That they delight in the law of God in their inner being, in their heart. That just doesn't seem 
that it can be a possibility. The unbeliever does not do this. In fact, the unbeliever, as we've talked other times, wants to be his own God. He wants to be his own God. That's really a definition of an unbeliever. I'll, I'll be my own God. I'll do it my way. Uh, last week, we talked about two ways that happens. They may do it by just going off into licentiousness and saying, I don't want anything to do with this and running away as far away as they can from it. Christianity. Or they may do it by grabbing onto the law and self-righteousness and deciding, I'll just do it myself. I'll save myself, thank you, by the law. I mean, they can do it lots of different ways, but it comes back to being about them and them being God, them being in control, them being the captain of their own destiny. That's, that's a definition of an unbeliever. They don't submit to God's law, nor can they. They don't, and particularly when it says, in my inner being. Now, it may look like they do. Don't, don't let that cause this argument not to hold. I mean, when I say that it may look like they do. You, you may not be able to tell that, that an unbeliever doesn't love the law. They may say they do, and they may act like they do, and they, they can have all kinds of emotions around the law when they hear it and all kinds of things. But at the heart, at their heart, the reason they're doing it, that's the issue. Why, why are they playing with the law that way? Why are they dealing with the law that way? And it seems to me that only a believer... Only a believer gets a proper understanding of that law to the point of saying, I love it in my inner being. Because again, it goes back to that whole idea that the fulfillment of the law is Christ. He is the, the, the end of the law, is Christ. He is the embodiment of all that uh, moral law in him, in his holiness. And unbelievers don't love that. They don't love that. That's a definition of an unbeliever. So, the way of the Spirit in verse 6 of chapter 7. Look, look at that for a minute. And then we're going to move on to another point. It says, but now we are released from the law. This was the last few weeks. Having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit. That's, that is a, a believer. And I think when Paul then over here talks about delighting in the law in my inner being, that's the kind of thing he's talking about, of the law within us, written on our hearts. And only believers have the law written on our hearts. Let me, let me say this. Um, when we talk about that, the other part of that is that when a believer says that, there, there's a fight, a fight in their life that only believers can fight, uh, the fight of faith to, to, uh, to love God's law, to, to be obedient to Christ in that sense. Only believers fight. There's no fight if, if we're not a believer, there's no battle in our hearts. And so um, the battle is in our hearts to, to follow Christ. Let's, let's go on to the second one. Um, the second point, this one. It's the most natural reading of the text. The second argument I would have is that the most natural reading of this text is that it's Paul in the moment writing about how he was when he wrote what he wrote. In other words, he's not, it, it doesn't, the most natural reading of that text is not to read it as though Paul's talking about some experience that happened back a ways. Look at three different places. In fact, he repeats the same thing three different times. Look at verses 14 um, to 17 first. It says, For we know that the law is spiritual, that I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. I do not do what I want, but the very thing that I hate. Now, I do what I do not want. I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, 
but sin that dwells in me. Paul's use of the first-person pronoun, all of those first-person pronouns there, it, it is written as though it's in the moment. And then you go on. He repeats it three times. I said, look at verses 18 to 20. The second time he says the same thing. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now I do what I do not want. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. That's the second time. Again, first person pronouns as though it were in the moment that he's writing it, not some past experience that Paul had as an unbeliever. And then finally, verses 21 to 24. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Three different times he says the very same thing in those verses. And they're all written in first person pronouns. And it all, in the natural reading of the text, seems to be in the moment that he's writing it. And in that moment, he is battling. He is fighting a fight. Again, that only believers fight. A fight that happens. The, the part of the point is that unbelievers, the, there's not a fight. Paul, in one place, as he was coming to the end of his life and knew that his days were numbered, said, I fought the fight of faith. Paul's not talking about fighting the fight of faith to believe. He's talking about the fight of faith to, to, to work out his sanctification, to, to grow in godliness, to be changed from one degree of glory to another. Unbelievers don't fight the fight of faith. They don't battle like this. They don't, they don't have that tension inside of them that is as real as the way Paul puts it, that, that two-pronged battle that goes on of the divided man. That's really what it's talking about here, the divided man. That isn't part of an unbeliever's idea of what's going on in their, in their head. Um, indwelling sin seeks to find, um, seeks to find a beachhead in our body at times. That's, that's what Paul's talking about, that indwelling sin that continues to be in the life of a believer finds beachheads in his body and finds it working its way out in his body. Not that the body is evil. In fact, we'll, one of the things I need to talk about to you is the, the idea of the body. Don't get the wrong idea of the body. That the, as soon as we get rid of this body, um, it was just the body's fault, and that's the, all of our problem. But it's the body that, in a sense, is neutral, but is fallen in this fallen world, in this broken world. It's part of this existence here. That indwelling sin finds a beachhead in our body, in our desires, again, that are that are neutral in one sense until something begins to influence them. And what is the battle here? The battle is that indwelling sin wants to influence those desires within us. And it takes those natural desires in the body and it wants to take them to excess or it wants to distort them. That's what indwelling sin does. That's the battle Paul's talking about. Again, I don't think unbeliever would talk in that sense. I don't have a concept of that. What does that look like? It looks like, again, indwelling sin, finding beachheads in our body in areas like leisure. Leisure. The body has a desire for rest. But indwelling sin comes and takes that desire for leisure, that desire for rest, to excess, to slothfulness, or worse. It takes things like food, we need food. We all need food. We need nourishment. But indwelling sin comes and takes those natural desires of hunger to eat to excess or distorts them. It takes things like drink 
and leads to excess. Takes things like sex and leads to excess or distortion. And Paul knew the reality of that, knew the reality that he still was prone to that even though he was now living life in the spirit. And there was a battle that went on at times and that battle happened in his body as he was on this earth. We'll, we'll come back to that, but keep that in mind. Keep that picture. Now the third thing, the third thing, third reason. I see this exact thing not only in Paul but also in Peter. Another helped me to see this, but it is, it is there. It definitely is there. Think of Peter for a minute. He's an apostle. Co-equal in that sense with Paul. He was one of the apostles. Paul's an apostle. You think, can, can an apostle write like this? Well, Peter, remember Peter? Three times Peter denied the Lord. Three times the text says that he denied Christ, even was predicted to do that by our Lord. And Peter said, never, never will I do that. Never. And he did. He did. And imagine what he might have thought. This is probably the kinds of things he thought. Wretched man that I am. Wretched man that I am. Some of the terminology Paul used. Wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this cowardly body of death? Fear. Fear gripped Peter. It was fear that caused him to deny the Lord. Fear took a beachhead in his body and caused Peter's lips to deny the Lord. And you say, but that was before Pentecost. And it was. But it happened again. It happened again to Peter. Turn to Galatians chapter 2. If you have your Bibles, turn. Galatians chapter 2 and uh, verse 11. Look at what it says. But when Cephas, now Peter, Peter, this is Peter, when Cephas came to Antioch, Paul's writing, I opposed him to his face. In other words, Paul and Peter have a confrontation because he stood condemned. He was wrong. That's what he's saying. Basically, he was wrong. I, I stood in his face, I got in his face, and he was wrong. For before certain men came from James... He was eating with the Gentiles, but when they came, he drew back and separated himself. See the next word? Fearing. Why did he do it? What happened, the context is Peter's eating with Gentiles. Some Jews come along, and and he's afraid of what they might say, say and think of him, and so he withdraws from the Gentiles. Peter becomes a hypocrite. Mature Peter becomes a hypocrite in this instance because it says he's fearing the circumcision party and the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even, not just Peter, but Barnabas participated in it. He led Barnabas astray to do the very same thing. But when I saw their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Peter, you're a hypocrite. And why did you fall to hypocrisy? Because of your fear of man. The very same thing that happened when he denied the Lord three times. Again, can you imagine Peter? Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this cowardly body of death? His besetting sin was fear. That might not be your besetting sin. That might not be the beachhead that Satan uses in your life, but I guarantee you there's a beachhead in your life someplace that he does use. He does that to all of us. And believers recognize it. Believers see it. Unbelievers don't. So, third reason is because other apostles talk about the same thing in the same way. Number four, the fourth reason why I think this is Peter as a, or Paul as a mature believer is I see it in the writings of other people that I deeply respect and admire. 
As you read the stories of the saints, oftentimes you will see them referring back to texts like Romans 7 and seeing it as a depiction of a mature believer, of a picture of how they struggle as they walk with God, as I see them as mature believers. Wilbur Wilberforce, um, who lived toward the end of the 18th century and spent five decades in Parliament fighting against the slave trade in England, trying to abolish it. Um, And finally, before he died, he saw that happen. But he writes these words in a book that he wrote. He says this, But while the servants of Christ continue in this life, glorious as is the issue of their labors, they receive many humiliating memorials of their remaining imperfections and daily find reason to confess that they cannot do the things that they would do. And then he references Romans chapter 7. Wilberforce was a huge force in England. He, he was incredibly, um, incredibly used of God in, in the parliament and respected and, and lived consistently and yet struggled with this struggle that Paul talks about. The late J.I. Packer, many of you know J.I. Packer because of the book Knowing God. That's where I first came in contact with him and began to hear of J.I. Packer. He passed away a, a year or so ago. He taught for many years at Regent College in Vancouver, Canada. And Packer has written many things, many books. But he said this. He said, and he had a very sensitive conscience, incredibly sensitive conscience. And he came to Christ at Oxford. Um, and, and as he began to walk with Christ, this, this is why I said at the beginning, one of my greatest fears is that you young people get a wrong picture because that's what happened to Packer early on. He got an improper picture of what it was to walk with Christ. And so he said, I might easily have been led to suicide. He, he wouldn't say those words lightly. That's not, that's not drama for drama's sake when he says that. That's not hyperbole. I would, admit, I would have easily led him to suicide, but for the writings of John Owen, John Owen on indwelling sin, a Puritan, or books by J.C. Ryle, particularly his book on holiness, another of the Puritans. Packer wrote a book on the Puritans. He knew a lot about the Puritans because the Puritans had such an influence in his life in regards to dealing with indwelling sin in his life as a believer. My pastoral experience of 44 years helps me um, to understand what both Wilberforce and Packer were talking about. My own experience, I'll talk about that in a minute, can identify with some of the early struggles I had learning how to walk with Christ. But my pastoral experience of 44 years would say to you this morning, um, nothing surprises me much anymore. Early years, I was naive. Early years, times things would be said or people would tell me of struggles that they have in their lives. But that doesn't throw me much anymore. It doesn't throw me much anymore. Because I know that every one of us in this room has a besetting sin that you battle with. By by that I mean something bigger than the rest. And they would be different. Some of them be the same, but they would be different. You might conquer one area where another person struggles dramatically and vice versa. That's that's the way it works. And, And it would surprise me. In fact, I would... To be honest with you, think you're not telling me everything. If I were to say to you, what is yours? And, and I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to poll you as you leave. But, but if I had a long enough relationship with you and we didn't ever hear about that, I, that would trouble me. Because the reality is we all do. We have places where we need more help than in others in our lives. And nothing surprises me much anymore. 
Number five, my own experience. My own experience makes me think Paul was talking about where he was at the time he wrote the words that he wrote. My own experience. My own struggle with resting in Christ as I saw my imperfections as I began to walk with Christ. My own struggle with assurance of not measuring up and how gloriously freeing it was when I began to see that there's a righteousness outside of me clearly. I, I'd had people tell me, trust Christ and receive Christ as your Savior, but they didn't take me any farther than that. They didn't tell me why that I could do that. And when I started to see why I could do that, because there is, in fact, a perfect righteousness that Christ provides to cover me with, out of which then I can battle my own sin that continues to plague me at times more often than I would want. I could do it from a, from a foundation of assurance, not from a foundation of trying to, to measure up. There's, there's a whole difference in that. If you're trying to battle sin so that you can measure up, in other words, be righteous, that's not the gospel. That's a distortion of the gospel. We are righteous. We are both simultaneously righteous because of the righteousness of Christ and sinner at the same time. And my battle with that, of being able to reconcile that and rest in his righteousness even as I battled sin in my life, and the problem was I would, uh, the more I would battle, the more I would see. I would, uh, the, the closer I got to God and his holiness and his perfection, the more I would see my imperfection. And that's exactly what happens. I think growth in grace is you see more of who God is. And the more you see of who God is, if you can't stand on the foundation of your acceptance because of the righteousness of Christ, that can lead you to despair. That's exactly what happened to people like Packer. I can identify with that experience. And once I realized and could say, I can't measure up, when I saw the holiness of God in ways that I knew there's no way, then I run to Christ. You see, that's what we've been talking about the last few weeks that the sting of my sin drove me to a savior instead of holding on to that savior thinking I'll help him, I realized I can't help him. If he didn't do it, if there's not enough there, I'm a goner because I keep seeing more and more and more in my life. I think that's the picture of walking with Christ because, because of this, it, it isn't just the deeds, folks. When we're talking about sin, it's not just the deed of the sin, but it's the thought. It's the desire. You see, when you start to really see sin, it's not just the action. It's the all, the stuff underneath. The action is just the top part. The iceberg is underneath, isn't it? And when you start to measure yourself by those kinds of things, you need a righteousness outside of yourself. It's our only hope. But it's a glorious hope that then let us battle, lets us look into our lives, let us go deep enough to really get something accomplished, a remedy. I knew this was going to happen. I, I just saw the time. I, I have to stop. I have to stop in the middle of this and we'll try to figure out how to put it all together next week. Um, I wanted to go farther. Let me, let me, let me jump to the end. I, I've got a couple other things. I'm not going to tell them, but is the... As they come, let me say this. This is what I want you to hear along with what I've just said. I think this is the experience of a mature believer. But hear this. Hear this. I'll probably say this every time. Hear this. No Christian, no Christian only lives here. No Christian only lives here in defeat. And secondly, No Christian only lives in perfect victory. Neither one of those are true and right. Neither one of them. It's a battle. It's a fight in the middle of that. And the key is, the key question is, are we fighting? Are we fighting? Are we willing to fight that battle? Are we willing to jump in and fight?
That's where we're headed to talk about that more. We'll talk, I'll give you some more reasons why I think that's what this text is saying to us next week. We'll move a little farther on that. And uh, I'm gonna have to stop here even though I don't want to. Let me pray. Father, help us. You knew that time would be up here. And so help us with what we've gotten already to not get a distorted idea of it, not to take it farther than what we've said and not to lessen what we've said, Father. But help us, help us, Lord, to better work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Help us better to be changed from one degree of glory to another as we walk with you. Help us not to paint on um, pictures of untrue reality in our life. Give us a realism about what it is to walk with you. Father, help us to see it for the sake of our being able to walk with you as we should. Help us to be a church, Lord, that is committed to the battle, is committed to the battle of battling indwelling sin. Lord, don't let us, don't let us give up in that battle. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's sing together as we close. My hope is hidden in the Lord. My hope is hidden in the Lord. He flowers each promise of his word. When winter fades, I know spring will come. The
say one more thing. Let me try to put a top on this before we open it back up next week. And uh, you all help me ask for mercy from my wife when this is over, if we go past time. Here's, I began by talking about my fear. Here's, here's part of that fear this morning. That there's somebody in here, maybe a young person in here, who has genuinely given their life to Christ. They, they have seen their sin and they've acknowledged it and they've looked to Christ and they've singing this song here even from their heart. But they got a sin in their life that it just keeps hammering at them. And they think, ah, what's wrong? What's wrong? I gave my life to Christ. I, I just want to say to you, it, it's possible you're not a believer. I mean, that's always a place to... Did, are you trusting Christ? Is he your salvation? Yeah, you, you, you don't want to run over that. But just because there's a battle doesn't mean you didn't. In fact, you don't start battling, really, until you come to Christ. So take heart today. Don't, don't go out and sin just because I got you off the hook. I mean, it's all right to feel bad about the sin, but fight it, battle it. Get people, talk to people who, who battled and find out how they did it, strategies to battle. I mean, get serious about coming against it. But don't go out in despair. And my hope, I, I wanted to close with this, I, I just, to have a church full of people who are battling, and being honest about the battle is the best thing for that person who's battling. Is the best thing for them. Because they see, I'm not different. I'm not a freak. This is, this is reality. Go in God's peace. Let God help you.